Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Joanna and the Maestro. And Maestro, this is a rather thrilling episode because we've been to see the film Maestro, written by, produced by, directed by, and starring Bradley Cooper, and in prime starring position was Carey Mulligan. And it's the life of Leonard Bernstein and his wife Felicia, and it was completely overwhelmingly good, wasn't it? I think it's one of the most moving films I've seen in a very long time. Very touching. Listeners at home, we had them in front of us in full Technicolor glory, and they were just enchanting, both looking as beautiful and as Bradley looking bearded now. He's obviously he's passed the film, and so he's putting on a beard. <laughs> and little Carrie, just like an angel descending from heaven. So it was a thrill to have them. Bernstein was the most amazingly innovative and insightful of conductors. And the music in the film is absolutely wonderful, all the music he conducted so extraordinarily powerfully. But it's about that relationship, husband and wife. And, of course, him as a composer. Yes. So it's not only about the music. It's a very, very, very human story. I, I, we were both incredibly moved by it. We were transfixed by it. Bernstein was drawn towards great literature, great philosophy, great poetry. So choosing the story of Voltaire's is perfectly typical of his thinking. He also was deeply attracted by W.H. Auden's The Age of Anxiety. Mm. And he wrote the wonderful second symphony called The Age of Anxiety, which is based on W.H. Auden's work. Now, look it up. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a fairly complicated philosophical narrative. But the symphony itself brims over with fantastically moving content. And there's a wonderful movement in it called The Mask, which is Bernstein combining classical music with jazz, with solo piano. And I was introduced to that when I was 14 at school, another one of those. I've never forgotten it. Bradley, honestly, Carrie, here you are. <laughs> this is Joanna and the Maestro. And just to make it clear for you, I'm Joanna, Joanna Lumley. And this is the Maestro, my husband, Stephen Barlow, who is a conductor, composer and pianist as well. And so we're now looking at another Maestro, but Maestro and Felicia. And welcome <laughs> onto Joanna and the Maestro. Thank we're you for thrilled having me. thrilled so and excited to us. have you with us. Can we just jump in, first of all, straight away and just say, Carrie, for instance, what was the first piece of classical music that you can remember 
that absolutely gripped your heart? Vivaldi's Four Seasons. I mean, it's so obvious. Was it? That is, it was that. It was really thinking through that as like six-year-old, I think. Yeah, we used to play it in the car. Because it was sort of like a story, you know, so it was like the same, yeah. had the same effect as being told a children's story, but you were just thinking through... Spring, summer, autumn, winter. The, yes, exactly. Each movement sums up so wonderfully well the characteristics of each season. And winter, in particular, conjures up ice and frost and cold and Wonderful darkness. Wonderful Yes, that's right. Bradley, same question to you. Um, I'm sure there was something earlier, but my conscious memory is uh, Mozart's Requiem from uh, watching Amadeus as a kid. That wonderful film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and then yeah. being obsessed. And I would go to any time I could see it being performed, uh, I would go. And then the other thing was um, Tchaikovsky's Opus 35 in D major, that violin concerto. There was a great performance uh, by Itzhak Perlman, a video I saw on, on PBS when I was a kid. And I just. And then there was that movie with Armand Asante and Dudley Moore where they play conductors, and that's the piece of music that they're conducting. Did you ever think of conducting? Did you ever. You became a musician early on? I mean, I was in the I was in the high school orchestra. I played the upright bass, but um, I was obsessed with conducting since I was a kid. Like not real conducting, but I would just spend hours and hours. And I asked Santa Claus for a baton that I had that I kept all the way through college, actually. And I would just always I just enjoyed like listening to a piece of music and pretending I was in front of an orchestra conducting it. Did you then go on to concerts and 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 watch what conductors were were doing? You must have done. I mean, I didn't do. I did it out of joy uh, as a kid. But uh, six years ago, I started to do it on a regular basis, knowing that I was, you know, preparing for this film. And then I got to do it, you know, four times a week for five years. First, the LA Phil opened up its doors, and I was able to go there. And then the New York Phil, I would go there, you know, three nights a week, put my daughter to bed, and and hop and 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 catch the second half of a concert. And I would be able to sit in in that place at Lincoln Center where I could see the the conductor. So it was wonderful. Yeah. And then working with Gustavo Dudamel and uh, Yannick Seguin, uh, you know, for years, mm-hmm. visiting and being able to sit, you know, with them and through a whole process of going through a rehearsal with an orchestra. And then, yeah, studied it, you know, so that we did it actually with the London Symphony Orchestra. That Mahler II resurrection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I recognized some of the, uh, some of the players. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Extraordinary. We heard it in, I know it sounds a terribly sort of ancient old woman-y thing to say, but we heard it with Dolby Sound, and the sound was spectacular in the cinema we saw it in, which is one of the newest cinemas in the great old Battersea Power Station. Kerry, when you were a small person, did you learn to play an instrument? I played the piano for a few years. I played the guitar, but just at church. Uh-huh. Um, but no, not beyond that. I was in the choir. I was always kind of in musical things, and I and I wanted to be... My my career dream was to be in musical theatre when I was little. And was I did it? my first musical when I was, well, at school I did The King and I when I lived in Dusseldorf in Germany when I was a kid. Oh, did you play Anna or were you a tiny baby? Who were you? 
I was a one of the kids and I was a dog. And I think I was a wave. <laughs> like I was, you know, but it was an international, it was the International School of Dusseldorf. So it was kids from like five to 18. So Anna and the King were 18 year olds. And I thought they were like movie stars. I mean, they oh, were just so, seemed yeah, so grown it, up and so beautiful. And so it was a really kind of gorgeous big production but I was just a little person but that was when I decided I wanted to be a musical theatre actress and then I got to about the age of 14 when I realised I wasn't kind of I, d- I didn't have the voice and I wasn't sort of a, a natural dancer <laughs> so I realised the two main things were not quite there for me but that acting was the bit that I could sort of do. Bradley this film Maestro is literally out of this world it is completely fabulous and when I look at the credits and I see you who have you wrote it, you directed it, you produced it, you acted in it. You've taken on your little tiny thin shoulders, your small manly but thin and frail actory shoulders. It's the universe. And you simply wrangled it. It was fantastic. Which bit of Bernstein grabbed you first of all? I mean, all of it. It was sort of a wave that hit me as I started to do the research. I was not familiar with his work. I was familiar mm-hmm. with his iconic image knowing that he had done these young people's concerts, but I had no idea about Chichester Psalms and The Quiet Place. I mean, all of these incredible pieces of music. I had no idea. That is a truly beautiful piece. And to be quite frank, the opera houses everywhere should be including that in their repertoire at some stage. It's a very moving, very profound opera. And there are plenty of numbers in there that only Bernstein could have written. Just to remind you, if you want to get in touch with us on the programme, do email hello at joannaandthemaestro.com. And we'd love to hear from you. We really would. We're fed up with the sound of our own voices. And we just want to hear your sweet voices. Well, obviously, I'll be reading them out, so it'll be my voice again. But all the problems and ideas and compliments and, and questions you have, I shall put to the maestro himself, maestro Stephen Barlow. All right, maestro, take it away. It was like a Christmas morning. Every day I would be able to unearth new pieces of his compositions. That coupled with his energy that has made its way into this film, even though he died in 1990. I mean, talk about like time bending, because I feel like I knew him. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it's really because he was just, uh, for whatever whatever he was channeling while he was here was very powerful. And anybody that I interviewed over the years, which made probably a total of 30 or 35 people, they all talked about him in the exact same way, that he would sort of walk in the room and, and you couldn't, you know, he just took over. And by the way, the thing that everybody always said too was, it was always, it wasn't Lenny and his wife, it was Lenny and Felicia. You know, that Felicia yeah. was a worthy adversary, that they both were these very unique, idiosyncratic beings. And that's why it was very exciting to then think, oh, let's make a movie. Let, let me write a movie about this, this relationship. But, but Bradley, was that your idea to make the movie or did somebody commission you to do it? 
No, it was my idea. Well, they I, someone paid me to make the movie, but I wrote it. Yeah, it was on. Yeah, I wrote it with a guy named Josh Singer, and uh, yeah, came, the whole movie came out of um, doing research and then realizing that's a story that I thought that I could tell. Bradley, did you when you when you studied him? Luckily, we've got film of him conducting so much <laughs> it's extraordinary how much there is it, it's but it was it was quite thrilling to see that you didn't exaggerate at all i mean what a conductor he was sort of giving we talk about giving his all and what i loved is that the 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 cinema we went to said would you like the artwork and we said you bet and we've got pictures of you and him you on one side and him on the other side and some of these pictures with him throwing himself arms in the air banging <laughs> shouting i mean he must have been a thrilling man to work for don't you think and when you conducted the orchestra do you think that you kind of passed on some of his spirit as it were i hope so i mean the way it felt the whole time we were shooting was that i had nothing to do with with the acting, I just sort of felt like I just stepped back and let him come in. That is the truth. That is what it felt like. I don't I don't feel like Carrie and I ever acted one moment in this movie. We just put the work in and then let them come through us. That, that it, it felt very ritualistic, the filming of this movie. They returned from the dead, those two. They were pleased with you and they inhabited you. You and you belong to them, actually. Look, I just want to show this. You can probably see it. This is this is you being extreme, and this is him being extreme. I mean, these, these it's the most enchanting thing. And the fact that you or the press or whoever it was put, put the quotes from him underneath, I can't live one day without hearing music, playing it, studying it, or thinking about it. Bradley, is that pretty much your life as well? Music is yeah. in you, running through you. If we cut you in half, it would say music, wouldn't it? Like a stick of rock. You don't know what sticks of rock are. Do you have There's sticks of rock? There's lots of things America? we've had to teach him today about what. But I'm a great learner. <laughs> yeah, we'll, very curious. We'll buy him some rock. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm dying to ask because, as a musician, and I'm sure the two maestros that you talked to would have said the same thing. He couldn't have sat down and taught anybody pure conducting technique. He didn't communicate music like that. He communicated it with, with movements that contained the meaning that he wanted to get out of the orchestra. Do you know what I'm... Because I know exactly what you're saying because, um, yes, and in terms of getting to a place of conducting in the movie, it was all about learning the basics but really having to conduct in the way that he conducted without mimicking, you know, like I'm not mimicking his, his actual conducting of that, which you can see on YouTube, but to conduct with the same physical language. And you're right, that is what he did. It was very unorthodox, but what he was able to evoke from, specifically soloists. You know, if you really look at so many of the soloists that he worked with throughout his career, they really loved working with him because they felt that Mm -hmm. he was able to bring out of them something that they didn't know they could bring to the music that they were singing or playing. He needed to compose it. He couldn't live without it, could he? I mean, No, and I think that's probably one of the biggest regrets of his life is that he didn't compose enough. Well, there you are, you see. The conducting, I wonder what it would have been like if if he'd just left conducting alone. I mean, that's something else that he found he was very good at and people wouldn't let him stop. They they wanted him all over the world, in, in Europe especially. And especially he because technologically, together. you know, he was around for all of the advancements. So that's why he, as you were saying earlier, is so videoed, so photographed. 
And he also had a manager, this guy, Harry Kraut, who was on the forefront of that. So he almost, it became a machine, really. And he was um, all over the world recording all of these pieces and, uh, you know, 15 seasons of the Young People's Concert, a television show, you know, Omnibus, uh, the Norton Lectures uh, in Harvard. You know, he was just, I mean, he always said, like, what do you consider yourself? He said, musician. I think teacher. I think the best thing he was was a teacher. He was an incredible teacher. I mean, you ever see on YouTube the five minutes, there's the history of music in five minutes. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look it up. I just don't know where that instinctive understanding of music <laughs> would, came from. I know. The, the, there hasn't been anyone like him, I think. And it wasn't and like he was, me, you know, he wasn't, he didn't grow up with music. His aunt moved and uh, they inherited a piano that, that was put in their hallway. The only time he heard yeah. music, there wasn't music playing in their house, you know, and it wasn't until he was like 13 or 12 that he started to play a piano. It's extraordinary. With this idea of sort of music all around you, Kerry, when you're preparing a part, when you're looking at the character, I've heard you've got a kind of playlist, like a kind of mood board for them. What did you have for Felicia? What, what did you pick out that would colour her for you? So funny, hardly any classical music, uh, because I had. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a separate playlist that was lots and lots of the music that was going to be in the film, because Bradley had all of that basically mapped out years in advance, and in the script. So that I knew all of that music, but there were songs I don't know that just spoke to a character. There was a song called "Die Young" by a band called Sylvanesso that I listened to a lot. There's a song called Two by Flock of Dimes. It was it was largely just contemporary music, but just songs that it is. It's sort of like a mood board and different things speak to different parts of, you know, the life of whoever I'm playing. But it was, yeah, mainly a bit of folk music, bit of Johnny Flynn. Yeah, a bit of a hodgepodge mix of stuff, really. Isn't that fascinating? You do that for all your characters. Yeah. Since I did The Seagull uh, when I was 21, I did, um, I did that at the Royal Court Theatre and played Nina and I had a... I was terrified. Um, so I would listen to music until the second I walked on stage, I'd drop my headphones with the stage manager and walk on. But I would spend the 20 minutes before listening to music and just walking around underneath the stage and up and around and not looking at anyone in the eye. And then as I walked on, I would shed my headphones. And I did it actually in the, the monologue yeah. that I did in New York right before Bradley and I met. I was doing a one-woman show, equally uh, quite nervous to do it. And I used to listen to Cher, if I could turn back time, right before I went on stage. And I would ditch my my uh, AirPods. Things have evolved. So I had AirPods that didn't... I would just drop them on the floor and then walk on. But that was a song I would listen to every night before I walked on. Do you get nervous, stage fright kind of feeling? Or just you just want to focus and just come laser sharp onto it? I think it's... Yeah, I'm trying I think to learn here, I'm darling. I'm trying to learn. I'm at the end of my acting career. I'm just trying to pick up a few hints. Yeah, well, let, let me tell you, Joanna. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's a combo. I have definitely had... When I did the monologue, that was proper stage fright. I couldn't get through the first page in until the second dress rehearsal. I mean, just couldn't do it. But that was just 90 minutes of talking to an audience and, and also quite trying to be funny, which is the hardest thing in the world. And But other times, yeah, just a nice focus. But interestingly, on this job, I did have a playlist. But once I left my trailer, that would be, I'd never listen to anything. Usually on set, I'll have headphones as you say, I never saw you with headphones. I know, but it's the yeah. first film I haven't done it on because by the time I got to set on this, it was already, the world was so, he was Lenny. The, mm. Most of the sets were 360. They were ready to shoot. We would just start doing it. We would. So there was, I didn't ever need that thing, which I've needed on most other jobs to sort of keep myself out of, you know, because it just felt like a big 
kind of playground when I got there. You stepped so. into another life, actually. You just yeah. stepped into a life, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, 100%. Bradley, as a director and a performer, literally just practically, how does that work? Do, do you have a kind of stand-in so you can look through the camera or do you know what it's going to look like? How do you do that? We spend a lot of time in preparation. Uh, the shots are already uh, thought out and rehearsed prior to the day, really. But then always letting myself open to if there's an idea that I can pivot and reset a shot. But I, I try to dial everything in before I invite the actors. And then this movie, there's, it's not like there was coverage, really. They're just singular shots and compositions or camera works for a scene. And then I just go back and I watch on a little monitor. There's no video village. There's no chairs. But I watched it just on a little monitor times two speed with no sound just to make sure that everything was exactly executed the way that's supposed to. And that's it. Yeah. And do you then spend time in the editing suite as well? Or do you have a, a trusted editor? Sorry about that airplane. Uh, a wonderful editor. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I spend all the time in the editing room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you were editing just at home all the time. Instead yeah, of I mean, I, I love it's editing. It's yeah. there's no. Yeah, I'm not the type of filmmaker that like um, says take a shot. No, we're we're there every second. Yeah, <laughs> they're literally saying it's out of time. That is literally it. They're on a tight <laughs> schedule, but we love you. We love you. Can you just say one piece of music you want us to play us out with? Bernstein, Chichester Psalms, yeah. please. Chichester Psalms, yes, wonderful. Please. We love yeah. you. Thank you Thank so you. much Thank for coming. Thank you so much. Yes. Pleasure. Gosh, that was exciting having Bradley and Kerry there in front of us, Maestro. So it was a thrill to have them. And as most people might know Bernstein from West Side Story, perhaps on the town, perhaps Candide, but maybe West Side Story is his most famous. Yeah. And these things were touched on, but not made much of, because it was really him as a musician, wasn't it? Yes, and the contradiction that he had in his life when he was much younger, when he was starting out, because he was primarily motivated as a composer. Mm. And then conducting sort of called him in a way. And, of course, the conducting career, it sort of gathers you up and propels you at great speed. What kind of a conductor would you... How would you describe him? Well, he's the ideal kind of conductor because one... Music meant something to him so powerfully. Mm. So when he conducted, you felt exactly what he felt about the music. And he, he went to great pains to say that he didn't want an orchestra to sound like an orchestra. He wanted an orchestra to sound like the composer. Yes. But it was his natural instinctive responses to the music that makes him stand out. There was nothing dry and academic about his conducting. It was all about his feeling about the music. It was interesting, too, which pieces of music Bradley Cooper chose to kind of highlight. And one was a phenomenal performance of Mahler too. Yes. You can't think of anybody who wouldn't fall in love with classical music if you heard that particular and saw that particular performance. He was so completely engrossed in it and the orchestra playing their socks off. Yes, the LSO, which he worked with a great deal here in London.
you feel that the world is breaking out in glory, actually, when you hear him and see him, because the videos exist, see him conducting Marlowe with such passion. Would you say that Bernstein is an essentially American composer? Yes. Because he loves the big, bright sounds of brass, doesn't he? Look, underpinning all of his music is a deep understanding and passion for jazz. Mm. Hence, Trouble in Tahiti, On the Town, yeah. um, West Side Story, which combines big band and strings, you know, orchestra and big band. Underpinning it all is a love of jazz. So jazz is never far away from all of his music, but each piece is so different. So on the one hand, you have Prelude, Fugue and Riffs, which is for solo clarinet and jazz band. And then you have the Jeremiah Symphony for full orchestra. I thought it was a wonderful part, and no wonder Bradley Cooper played it so well, because he, Bradley, is a musician anyway, mm. and has got colossal musical instincts, mm. and also an extremely fine actor. So once you put the two of them together, and then to add to the mix the fabulous Carrie Mulligan, who seems to simply disappear into every role she takes on, and here playing his wife, Felicia, and she gets top billing. I mean, that's another of the great courtesies of Bradley Cooper. Is it's a real double it, act. It is, it? it really it, it, is. The story is as much about them and their marriage as about him as a composer and conductor and a musician. It's much more about the, the yes. relationship for me. It's a much more human story because of his sexuality, which was well known. Because he sort of preferred boys to girls in the mostly, didn't he? But he said that marriage had been the most wonderful experience in his life. Yes. And he saluted the idea of marriage. So it, it's about their relationship and the two of them. Bradley Cooper and Carrie Mulligan disappear into the roles of Felicia and Leonard um, in their relationship. There was a lot of Bernstein I didn't know. I didn't know about the Chichester Psalms. <gasps> Tell Do me about that. No, I didn't know about that. The Chichester Psalms, people should just, you know, have a listen to that. It, it's an extraordinary piece. Tell me vaguely the story of Candide, because I don't know it. I know now that wonderful music and the way it ends. I mean, it's just staggering and turbulent and thrilling and exciting. Now you're testing me. Yes. It, it, look, it's based on Voltaire. Right. And I'm hopeless on telling plots, as no, you know. No, well, I didn't I want can the just plot. about Master, do marriage and Figaro. I just wanted you to say, <laughs> I wonder what attracted him to it. Is it is it just an overture or is it an opera? No, 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 it? it's an opera. It's it, an opera. It, 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 yes, it's an opera. And they chose as a play out the Chichester Psalms. That. Oh, it's a sensational piece. It's a setting of Hebrew texts. And it's heartbreakingly touching. All of his music, I mean, we all know West Side Story. If we don't actually know the detail of it, we certainly know Tonight, Tonight, He wrote wonderful melodies, which actually you feel in the Chichester Psalms. It is religious in conception, but his music humanises people. It humanises religion which he, he was at great pains to do. Do remember to watch Maestro on December the 20th when it comes out on Netflix. It's a treat in store.
You've been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle, burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton and mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills. Our production manager is Sarah Anderson. And our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you heard the following music. Symphony No. 2 in C minor, Resurrection. Written by Gustav Mahler and performed by Leonard Bernstein, Dame Janet Baker, Sheila Armstrong, Arthur Oldham, the Edinburgh Festival Chorus and the London Symphony Orchestra. The publisher was Keith Prowse Music Publishing Co. And the record label was Sony Music Entertainment. Symphony No. 2, The Age of Anxiety, Part 2B, The Mask, written by Leonard Bernstein and performed by Leonard Bernstein, Philippe Entremont and the New York Philharmonic. The publisher was Universal Music Publishing Limited and the record label was Sony BMG Music Entertainment. Concerto for Violin and Strings in F Minor, Opus 8 No. 4, Linverno, written by Antonio Vivaldi and performed by Alan Loveday, the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, and Sir Neville Mariner. The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. A Quiet Place, Act 1, Postlude, written by Leonard Bernstein, and performed by the ORF Symphony Orchestra and Leonard Bernstein. The publisher was Universal Music Publishing Limited, and the record label was Deutsch Grammophon. Chichester Psalms, Psalm 131. Written by Leonard Bernstein and performed by Wiener Jeunesse Chor, the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra and Leonard Bernstein. The publisher was Universal Music Publishing Limited and the record label was Deutsch Grammophon.